0: 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses uh, 16 through 22. We're going to kind of blow through 16, 17, and 18 because I'm going to save those the exposition of those a little bit for for Sunday. But tonight we come to the end of this last chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Come to these last few verses. You guys know the theme if you've been with us for 1 Thessalonians. It's He Shall Return. Jesus is coming back, and these verses, we learned on Sunday, are like short commands from Paul. These are commands, Paul saying, this is how we should live in light of the fact that he's coming back. Paul is like a sergeant barking out short, pithy orders here from here to the end of the chapter. This is how you live in light of Jesus' imminent return. Verse 12 through 15, we saw on Sunday, Paul was dealing with, in these verses 12 through 15, he was dealing with our horizontal relationships, our relationships with each other. For instance, the responsibilities of good leadership. We saw that on Sunday. And the proper response to leadership. And in there you see in uh, verses uh, 14, 15, I think, he says, "Warn the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, lift up the weak." These were commands that Paul said, "Look, this is how we have to live uh, in relationship to each other, on the horizontal, OK? But now, tonight, beginning with verse 16, Paul turns our attention to the vertical relationship. In light of Jesus' return, how shall we live in relation to God? Verse 16 reads this way: "Rejoice always." Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So We're going to talk more about this on Sunday, but so often we want to know what God's will is, right? Uh, is it this job, Lord, or that job? Should I live in this house or that house? Should I take this person as a mate or that one? And we, we struggle and we strain. We say, how can I know, Lord? I, I, I want to know your will. And what we want, I think, most of the time is for God's giant finger to come down and point that house, not that one, right? That job, not that one. That mate, not that one. But in my experience, you guys can correct me, but he doesn't work that way. He generally doesn't just point to you with a a giant finger. But here he gives us in these three verses, short, quick verses, Gives us a great place to start. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Then he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says, if you want to know God's will, start here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. See, there's at least a whole sermon here. So, I'm going to save that for Sunday. But I want you to notice a couple things real quick before we move on. Look at the uh, qualifiers Verse 16, rejoice how? Always. Verse 17, pray how? Without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in what? In everything. These superlatives seem to make the verbs seem impossible. I mean, always be rejoicing? I mean, even when life stinks? Never cease praying, even when your prayers aren't answered? In everything, give thanks? even when you have cancer? Suffice it to say, what we're going to find out on Sunday is that what God wants from us is a constant awareness of His presence, a constant dependence upon His power, and a constant trusting of His perspective. We're going to see on, on Sunday, these three verses lead you, lead me, into what God desires most. And you know what that is? Fellowship with you. What He really wants is to fellowship with you. If you're looking for God's will, you need to know this. The first, first thing on his list, when you say, God, what's your will? First thing on his list is to fellowship with you, to have the, a relationship with you. And what we're going to see is on Sunday, as you cultivate your relationship with him, the, the things that he wants you to do become more clear, become really second nature. Now, let's continue on with the theme, this theme of Jesus is coming back, so let's cultivate the vertical relationship. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And then he says, verse 19, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. You ever heard these verses, verses 19 and 20, used this way? Brother, I got a word from the Lord for you. You'd better heed it. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. You ever heard somebody use these verses that way? It's like this person is like a member of the spiritual mafia, and they're using the Holy Spirit as their thug, right? Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecy. People have used these verses to justify all sorts of crazy stuff. (coughs) Holy laughter, barking like dogs, Crazy stuff that's not in the Bible. And when you say, uh, where's that in the Bible? They say, don't quench the spirit. Or people will use this this phrase, quench the spirit, in the same way I use the word "buzzkill," kill, (laughs) groove kill. Um, You know, just a goofy example. Let's say everyone was wearing a a, a Calvary Chapel of the Lakes t-shirt until you came in with another shirt on. Oh, dude, what a quench. Really quench the spirit. Um, Or I've actually heard this. The worship was so great last night and we didn't want to quench the spirit. So we kept worshiping. We didn't even have time for a sermon. Right. Thinking that the the spirit is, is moving in such a way that that we don't want to quench the spirit. So we don't hear from the word of God. Is that what this means? Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do these verses mean, for instance, That if one of you were to want to interrupt the service and you claim you have a prophecy, am I obligated to let you take the floor? If we stop singing, for instance, let's say we did four choruses instead of five. Are we quenching the spirit? Let's look at this. Verse 19 again. Do not quench the spirit. What does the word quench mean? It literally means to extinguish a fire. Interesting, this is the only time in the New Testament that this is used metaphorically. In every other instance, the word quench is actually talking about extinguishing a fire. Paul describes the person here of the Holy Spirit like a flame, a flame of fire. Now, that's not an unusual association, the Holy Spirit being associated with fire. Do you guys remember John the Baptist? He was speaking of Jesus and he said in Matthew 3 verse 11, he says, I indeed you, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me, Jesus, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit, make no mistake, is a person. He's spoken here, though, metaphorically as a fire. Now felt like the Lord sort of took me on a little journey thinking about fire through the New Testament. In the Early in the Gospel of John, you guys know that Jesus is identified as what? The light of the world. A theme that runs all throughout John. Jesus was the light is, the light of the world, right? Um, now they didn't have incandescent bulbs back then, right? So the only way you could light something would be with fire And in interesting john 9 verse 5 jesus said of himself he says as long as i am in the world i am the light of the world it's like jesus is saying look i'm the, i'm the flame that while i'm here i will light the way for the world then later what happens jesus says i must leave but i will send another John 14, verse 16, Jesus said it this way. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And he says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We have to get into a little bit of theology in case uh, some some of you folks I haven't seen too many times before, so I need to make sure I've covered this. Jesus says to the disciples... When he's saying, okay guys, i got to go, he's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, this other helper, this flame, he's already dwelling with you, but when I'm resurrected, he will dwell in you. And then in Acts chapter 1, if you were with us in Acts, Jesus says to these same disciples, he says, wait in Jerusalem for this Holy Spirit, this flame will come upon you. Three different ways that the Holy Spirit acts upon us or acts in our environment. He will be with you. How that happens is when you are listening to a message and you're not saved, it's the Holy Spirit that's saying, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, inside us. And here in Acts chapter 1, after the disciples have already received the Spirit in them, then Jesus says, but wait, for the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And almost like a perfect illustration of this flame concept, look now with me at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of... Fire, and one sat upon each of them. Get the picture. They're in they're in the upper room there, and they all look like candles. Right? There's the this, this divided tongue. It looks like fire. One sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Make sure I want to make sure you get this. Three ways the Holy Spirit operates operates in our lives. He will be with you. Jesus says he'll be with you. He right now. If if there's an unbeliever in the room, the Holy Spirit is still present here, and he is saying to you, you need Jesus. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, excuse me, operates with us, around us. He's the flicker of light convicting us of our sin, pointing to Jesus. Okay? Then, when you're saved, the Bible's very clear that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. That same light, you could say floods your soul, cleanses you of your sin. But after that, as in Acts chapter 1 Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit wants to come upon us. He wants to come upon you and me. What does that mean? Well, it means the same thing it meant in cha- Acts chapter 2. He wants to overflow our lives. He wants to give us power. He wants to overflow our our lives with power and love. He wants me, he wants you to be a light that can be seen by others, pointing the way to him. Just like they did in Acts chapter 2. See, we should be filled, Ephesians chapter 6 says, we should be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit and we should be continually being filled. In fact, this light, the Holy Spirit, that's supposed to be overflowing in us, Jesus says... We should be like lights that can be seen from a mile away, from a long way away. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus speaking of his disciples then and now, You are the light of the world. And he said, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You guys see it, the Holy Spirit is a person, but he's described here to give us a a picture as a flame of fire. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, don't quench, don't extinguish, don't put out that flame. Listen, Jesus is coming back. The world needs to see that flame. The world needs to see that flame on you. See, Jesus wants the Spirit to burn brightly upon us that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, there's three ways, right? We've we've seen that that the Holy Spirit burns. But there's really only one way that it can be quenched, if I understand it correctly. I mean, the Holy Spirit's working with, right? uh, Convicting the world of sin, Jesus said. When When the Holy Spirit is working outside of us, then that can't be quenched until the time comes when he is removed from the world, right? So that, won't, that can't be quenched by anything that we can do. What about when he's inside of you? That can't be quenched because Ephesians 4.30 says that the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. It's a done deal. So there's only one way you can quench the Spirit, and that's when the Spirit is upon you. It's only the flame that is upon you, the little flicker on your head, that can be quenched. It's, that's the only thing that can be put out, which means your impact upon other people, right? So how do we quench the Holy Spirit? Let's talk more specifically. How do you quench the Holy Spirit? Well, how do you quench a flame on a candle? I mean, if it's small enough, you can, you can quench it with just two fingers. You can douse it with a chemical, right? Spray it with an extinguisher. You can stop, drop, and roll. You can take a blanket and beat it out. But it all comes down to, if you're talking about quenching a flame, it really comes down to one thing done one of two ways. The way to quench a flame is to take out the oxygen, right? And it only can happen, if I understand it right, One of two ways. You can either smother it, or you can simply fail to fuel it. Let's talk about the first way. You can quench the flame of the Holy Spirit working upon your life. You can quench that by smothering it. We actually saw that already. Matthew chapter five, verse fourteen. Let me read it to you again. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, you can quench the work that the Spirit wants to do in your life by covering it up. Right? You put something over a flame, close enough, long enough, if you cover it up, You can quench it. You can quench the work of the Holy Spirit upon your life by covering it up at work, by covering it up with certain friends, by living in a way that nobody really knows, except at church, that you're a Christian. You can quench the Holy Spirit by just trying to fit in, not trying to stick out in the world. Yeah, that'll do the trick. If you want to quench the Spirit, just try to cover your relationship with Jesus up. It's like the little boy. Maybe you heard this little boy trying to understand the mystery of salvation. He's talking with his mom. and His mom says, well, it's kind of hard to explain unless you you understand, son. You invite Jesus into your heart. And he comes to live inside of you. Little boy thinks about that for a second and says, but mom, I'm just a little boy and Jesus is so big. Won't he stick out? And The answer is yes. If you have Jesus in you, he's too big. He's too great. He naturally will stick out. But you can, you can hold him down, you can hold him in, you can cover him up, and you can quench the work of the Holy Spirit upon your life. And of course, you can also quench the Holy Spirit by, you can snuff out the work of the Spirit by covering it with sin. Look down at verse 22. 22 Verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, Jesus said, But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It, it should go without saying that sin in our lives can quench, can snuff out the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do upon us, right, through us. So you can quench it by... Covering, but you can also quench the flame of the Holy Spirit simply by inattentiveness. Turn now with me, If I, I don't think I told you this, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. It's easy to find. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus spoke. Remind me again, what's the, the theme of First Thessalonians? He shall return. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus wants us to be ready, right? Read with me now, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Maybe I should say it this way. They all slumbered and slept. Verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also saying lord lord open to us But he answered and said assuredly. I say to you. I do not know you And the point of Jesus' story is very clear in verse 13 watch therefore He says for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming We've seen this over and over again as we're going through first. Thessalonians. we don't know the day or the hour That's why we should be ready now half the virgins thought That they had a relationship with the bridegroom. But they knock on the door. And he says, I'm sorry. We've never really met. And there are people in every church like that. They claim to be Christian. They may even think they're Christian. But they have no relationship with him. But what I want you guys to notice for our discussion tonight. Look at verse 8. The foolish said to the wise give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. That's the same word for quench. The point is this. Some fires go out by snuffing them out with sin or covering them up, being ashamed to be called a disciple of Jesus. But a lot of fires, they go out simply because they're not tended to. Lack of fuel. What's What's the fuel? What's the oil that will keep the fire of the Holy Spirit upon us? Go back with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What's the fuel? What's the thing that we need to continually be doing to keep our lamp lit? Look at with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now back up with me. Three verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Here's how you quench the Holy Spirit. Don't rejoice. Don't pray. Don't give thanks. I promise you, if you don't rejoice, you don't pray, you don't give thanks, you will find a pile of embers where your abundant life used to be. For that matter, back up some more. We could do this all with the whole chapter. If you want to quench a spirit, don't comfort the faint-hearted. Don't uphold the weak. Don't be patient with all. Go ahead, render evil for evil. Only pursue what is good for you, not for all. If you want to put out the fire of the Holy Spirit, and again, I'm not saying your salvation, I'm saying the Holy Spirit upon your life, the abundant life that people notice, if you want to put that out, just don't do these things. Now look at with me at verse 20. Paul says, do not despise prophecies. Now despise, that word means to make of no account. To treat with contempt. Now when we think of prophecy, most of the time we think of foretelling the future, right? But it also means, and actually more often in the Bible it means forthtelling, Telling forth The the words of God. Speaking forth God's truth. This is the actual definition from a blue letter Bible. It says a discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked or comforting the afflicted or revealing things hidden. Now, by that definition, forth telling. I believe prophecy is a really good word to describe what happens whenever we come together together. And study his word Is it not a discourse Emanating from divine inspiration And declaring the purposes of God He's telling us what his purposes are Reproving, admonishing the wicked Comforting the afflicted, revealing things hidden So this verse means Whether it's someone Claiming to foretell the future Or someone Teaching From the scriptures, telling, Says don't despise it Don't reject it don't just dismiss it. Now, does that mean... Again, we're, we're back to this, this uh, question. Does this mean that I'm just supposed to let anybody who says, Hey, I, I got a prophecy. Am I just supposed to let them speak in the name of the Lord? Not necessarily. Look now at verse 21. We have our clarifier. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. There are tests by which we can know... If someone is truly speaking for the Lord, he says, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. In other words, if it passes the test, then keep it. If it doesn't dismiss it. And some of these tests are very quick, very simple. For instance. If someone speak, claims to be foretelling the future, <laughs> that was pretty easy to figure out. If it happens just the way they said it exactly as they spoke it, then. I, you know, they're, they're in the clear. But if it doesn't, then the Bible says that they're false prophets. And if we live by the Old Testament, we would take them out in the back there and stone them to death. But that test takes some time, though, right? To figure out whether or not this prophecy is true. Are we supposed to then necessarily let someone who claims to have a prophecy take the floor, come up to the, the pulpit, and take the floor prior to that? Well... There's some other tests. For instance, God will never contradict himself. See, a prophecy must line up perfectly with what God has already spoken to us through his word, right? For instance, if you were to stand up and say, hey, God has given me a prophecy that homosexuality is now okay with God. I can know for sure. Okay, false prophet. If you were to say, that the Lord told you He's coming back for certain next Tuesday, I say, okay, false prophet, because Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour. There's tests that you can look upon this and say, uh, yes, no, or I've got, I need some more information. Um, here's another test: is that God will not interrupt Himself. If I am teaching, if I am forth telling the Word of God, right? And and we believe that he is actually speaking now, right, through an earthen vessel because of his word. And his word is the thing that we're listening to. And someone bursts in and, and, and has a claim to prophecy, then one of us isn't speaking the word of God because he won't interrupt himself. If the spirit gives a prophecy, he would be able to tell me, look, this is for real. Shut up. Let the guy talk. If, on the other hand, we have how many people know what an afterglow is? Um, they are fairly prevalent in Calvary chapels. Um, we never had one in Orlando w- when we were there, um, but they they have them at Merritt Island and stuff. And I'm I'm not opposed to them. I'm not sure even how to to go down that road because I. Never had any experience with it, but I'm still open to that. If we were to have an afterglow and you were to hear, as best you could tell, the voice of the Lord saying, read this scripture. Someone needs to hear this scripture. You would be very safe in doing so because it's the scripture. If you're worshiping the Lord and he puts a verse in your head and he tells you, you need to say this out loud. These are the things where it says, do not despise prophecy. You get it? Um, and maybe that's what some of us need to hear because, like I said, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the idea because I haven't had any experience with it. You know, much. I've had a little bit. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what the Lord is saying to us. Look, don't just dismiss the idea that the Lord can speak through his people in this way. Um, When he does, I think we know and we'll respond. It says, do, do not despise this. It's, and especially, again, if it's scripture, it's safe because it probably means that someone in the room definitely needs to hear that. And if it's you that the Lord speaks to through some word of prophecy, then it says, test it by the word and then what? Hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. It means to hold fast, to keep secure, keep firm possession of. If you've had a word of prophecy spoken to you by way of one of his precious saints, and you know that to be true, by all means, hold it tight. Maybe some of you guys don't know this. Calvary Chapel, the very first one out in Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith had prophecy spoken over him. And it was exactly the way it turned out to be. It says, um says, uh, The man. This was before he came. They said the man that's coming into this church next will move the uh, pulpit over in a certain area. He'll he'll, he'll rearrange things in the front. And oh, by the way, he will also uh, start a church that will minister to multiplied thousands um, and be. uh, It will birth other churches as well. So prophecy is not completely foreign to Calvary Chapel. Um, We are to test it, and then if it rings true, we are to hold fast to it. And I'm sure that's what Pastor Chuck probably did when uh, he was, you know, trying to live off of $4.62 a week. We are to hold fast to test, hold fast to that which is good.